Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, or so I regard him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Kimberly told me the other day that uh, she was out and about with the kids in the car that Silas was demanding, I think, his bottle, and he was insisting it. Of course, he doesn't have words yet, or at least doesn't have words that we understand. And so he's demanding this. And uh, my 10-year-old, who has been taught well by my wife to understand English and all the grammatical terms that people need to understand, my 10-year-old looked at him and said, Silas, you are such an imperative. <laughs> what he really should have said is you're so imperatival, but that's a different thing. That's for later. The Bible is full of imperatives. It is full of things that are imperative for you to understand. God says things, and then he demands things as a result of what he has said. We've said many times we are very committed to the imperatives of the Scripture. We're also very committed to the declaratives, the declarations and the commands. A very man-centered theology loves to take a black highlighter and wipe out everything related to the professions about the character of God. It does everything to do away with the sovereignty of God, the sovereign grace of God. But a true, genuinely Bible-based theology is rooted in the reality that there are not only imperatives or commands, there are also declarations about the character of God. And we must not dismiss one for the sake of the other. We must rest in the reality that God has made statements about himself that the commands do not do away with. The commands come to us in light of his declarations about himself. And man tends to get that backwards, especially in his Christian infancy. It's not unreasonable that a brand new believer would simply look back on his very, very short Christian experience and get it wrong and say, oh, look what I did. But as a person grows in his understanding of the Word of God, he grows in humility, he is more and more willing to stop putting an overemphasis on the commands of God and put an equal and very important emphasis on the declarations of God. We want to be imperatival. We want to command one another with grace to obey the imperatives of the Scripture but we also want to command graciously from one another that we believe and live in light of God's declarations about himself. This is an imperative. Stand firm in it. Paul says to Timothy, be strong in the grace of Jesus Christ. The world has a very upside-down perspective of Christianity, and that's the fault of Christians. Because many times Christians show themselves to be weak in the midst of difficulty and struggle and trial and tribulation. And instead of focusing on the strength of Christ and resting in the strength of Christ by his grace, many times what we do, sadly and erroneously, is try to simply be strong in ourselves. I can do this. I have the willpower. I have the strength. I know I can overcome. I've overcome before. I can surely do it again. We don't stop to think that anything that we ever do that's of any value at all is the result of God's grace. And what we tend to do is take credit for what we've done. So we're not resting in grace. We're resting in our man-made ability, our false identity, our misperceptions about ourselves. And so what then do we do? We hold the unbeliever to the same standard. I did it. What's wrong with you? Why won't you do it? We should be resting in the fact that it is by grace and grace alone that we are saved. It is by grace and grace alone that we are sanctified. Let's look back at the beginning of Peter's letter. He says, to those who are chosen, and then he makes this statement about grace. This is not a mistake it's not a bad doctrine. It shouldn't be a hated doctrine. Some people hate this reality. Some people say, why do you spend so much time emphasizing this? Because the Bible does. Try to avoid what God has said. Rest in it. Find joy in it. Recognize that God's much, much larger than your limited ability to understand everything he has said. 
does not enable or license you to dismiss a doctrine that permeates the scripture. Find joy in what God has said. Peter is very clear. This is a letter written exclusively to the elect. And that's it. It's not written to anyone else. To the chosen. This is an expression of grace. But not the grace that has been twisted into a wrong definition. We'll look at what grace actually is. This is an expression of it. He goes on in the latter half of verse 2, chapter 1, to say, May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. The fullest measure. Last week we saw that his final words, his actual final words, were peace be to you all who are what? In Christ. It's an exclusive letter. It's not for everyone. It's for those who are in Christ. And the implication is that you cannot hope for peace for the person who is not in Christ. And so the wrong thing to do is to pray for peace for people who are not in Christ. Pray that God would grant them that which leads to peace, that by grace he would save them, that he would regenerate them, that he would make the dead alive. Then they'll have peace. Then they'll have peace. Then we've got to help them and counsel them and train them and nurture them and strengthen them into resting in that grace that led to that peace. Peter calls on those who are in Christ to experience grace and peace to the fullest measure, that it may be multiplied to them. May they experience it maximally, not in some partial measure, not even in a large dose, but in absolute fullness. To the degree that you're not experiencing joy, you've got some embitteredness towards someone it's the result of a faulty view of grace. You think you're better than that person. So you're not resting in the grace God has granted to you that you would have Christ, and therefore you think that it's okay, it's even good, it's acceptable, it's right for you to have a condescending attitude and maybe even lash out toward that person one day as you have rehearsed so many times. It's a misunderstanding of grace. It's a misproportion of grace. It's a lack of willingness to experience multiplied grace, grace in the fullest measure. You're denting your grace. You're extracting grace from that which God has set aside for you. Hebrews 12 verse 15 says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, many be poisoned. And you know what the catalysts of poison are in spiritual venues. Gossip, bitterness, malice, slander harboring ill will towards someone that you think is harboring ill will toward you. It's only fair. A root of bitterness, such clear, picturesque terminology. There's a root. It's growing. It's a root of bitterness. It needs to be rooted out. How does that work? Tool of grace. Fullness of grace. Not just some proportion of grace, some lesser measure of grace, but fullness of grace. Again, this pastor in Hebrews 12 says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Hebrews 13, 9, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. See that? False doctrine comes as a result of misunderstanding of grace a misproportioned grace, a lesser degree of grace than what God has established for the elect. Don't be carried away by varied and strange teachings. This is unbelievably common. 
varied and strange teachings. You know, Paul warned us in Galatians 1 that those teach a gospel other than that which is preached by the apostles is himself accursed. A different gospel. It's not a gospel of grace. The writer in Hebrews goes on after saying, it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. Those who were over-focused, hyper-focused on the matter of what to eat and what not to eat, the legalistic perspective of the pseudo-Jew, the actually unorthodox Jew. Now, what is grace? What is it? You've heard that it is unmerited favor. It's an excellent definition. It's not a full definition, but it's a great start. It's unearned. It's the pleasure of God poured out on one who not only does not deserve his favor, but deserves his wrath. That's grace. Grace is not an entity. It's not a tangible, tactile reality. It's a vehicle. Really, it's an attitude. What is the true grace of God? There's a reason Peter qualifies it as the true grace of God. There are those who will misdefine grace. And again, as I said, it's common. There are those who frequently and passionately want you to think that grace is something that you chose. That defies the reality of unmerited favor. If you chose it, it's not grace. Louis Burkhoff has said that grace is the unmerited operation of God in the heart of man, effected through the agency of the Holy Spirit. John MacArthur has said very succinctly, Grace is God's sovereign initiative to sinners. In Ephesians 1, Paul the Apostle in verse 5 says, In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Paul's working definition. You know, your teachers all along throughout the years told you you can't use the word you're defining in the definition of that word. But sometimes it works. And in this case, it certainly does. Grace has resulted in the fact that in his love, God predestined us to adoption as his children through Christ Jesus according to the kind intention of his will. You say, why would God pour his grace out on some? Because of the kind intention of his will. That's what we know. But why not others? The scripture doesn't tell us. But we do know this, for all of us, even those who have received grace, we are utterly and completely culpable for eternal wrath. We deserve wrath because of our willful commitment to a spiritually sinful and inept and unable condition. That is who we were. And God, according to the kind intention of his will, chose to pluck back some. And it is an ungrateful attitude to say, when you've been plucked back, well, that's just unfair, and I don't like it. This is a perplexing attitude in the person who has actually been exposed to the truth of God's grace. The person who has received grace should simply be thankful and humbled by it and not consider himself to be the adjudicator of the one who has granted the grace. That's a remarkably prideful attitude. Oh God, how could you and how couldn't you? Sounds a little bit like Martha as she demanded from the Lord 
that he do something about her sister who was resting in the grace that she knew as a result of God's kindness. A.W. Tozer said, Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. J.I. Packer, in Knowing God, said, It is staple diet in the Sunday school that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. You heard that acronym? God's riches at Christ's expense. Packer goes on to say, And yet, despite these facts, there do not seem to be many in our churches who actually believe in grace. End quote. To believe in the true grace of God, one would need to look at the Word of God for an accurate view of man's sinful and impotent condition, making him worthy of eternal torment and unable to do anything about it in light of God's perfect holiness and eternal condemnation and wrath upon all unholiness and ungodliness against those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, Packer goes on to say, The grace of God is love, freely shown towards guilty sinners contrary to their merit and indeed in defiance of their demerit. It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity. We have seen why the thought of grace means so little to some church people, namely because they do not share the beliefs about God and man which it presupposes. End quote. In Ephesians 1, verse 7, Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. And this is the solution to what he reports in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We ought to refer to ourselves as the once walking dead. This is not a confluence of life and death. Please understand this. What Paul is not saying here is that you are sort of alive and sort of dead. He is saying that you are completely dead and completely alive completely spiritually dead and completely physically alive. You walked in a physical condition. You were, as he says in Romans 6, alive to sin, alive to ungodliness, alive to evil, but you were dead to righteousness, dead to Christ. Christ turned that upside down. He changed that. There was a transaction. He made you alive. You were spiritually dead, not spiritually sort of dead. Paul goes on in Ephesians 2, verse 3, to say, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging, that's an unbridled focus and appetite for things evil, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. God did that. You didn't do that. If you don't believe that you were completely dead, totally unable in your spiritual deadness, then of course you won't believe in a biblical grace. You won't need that in your estimation. Again, he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And then he says this, by grace you have been saved. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he would get the glory, he would get the credit. 
It's unmerited favor. It's unearned. 2 Timothy 1, verse 8, Paul says to Timothy, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. I, I echo these words. This is what I'm appointed for. But you are too. As believers, we are appointed to communicate the power of the gospel to resurrect the dead unto new life. God does that, and he does it by grace. Now, you recall that this passage started with the word therefore. Therefore, pointing back to verse 1 in chapter 2, where Paul says to Timothy, you, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be firmly committed to it. Don't be intimidated by those with a man-centered theology, even though they may appear to love Christ, even though they may actually love Christ. Timothy, don't let man intimidate you into a false understanding of grace. Be strong in grace. As you know in our text this morning, Peter says, stand firm in the true grace of God. The point being that there will be those who will diminish the significance of grace. They will unload God's sovereignty. They will back that truck right out of the concept of God's grace because they don't want to believe that they couldn't have had something to do with their salvation. Dead doesn't mean dead. Somehow. In our discipleship material this last session, we talked about John Bunyan and how he wanted to be faithful to Christ, but was so frustrated in his inability to experience sanctification. He somehow couldn't get a grip on what it meant to grow spiritually. And then it hit him as he was in the word that it is not only by grace that you are saved, it is by grace alone. And that resulted in such utter joy that he found himself compelled to honor the Lord in his attitude and in his life. This is the restrictive reality of man-centered theology that until you are convinced that God's work in your life is literally actually only a work of grace, you will so pridefully want to take credit for it that it will actually inhibit your spiritual growth, your ability to effectively exalt God properly, to edify the saints, and to evangelize the lost. James Montgomery Boyce does a tremendous job of distilling the five solas of the Reformed Christian faith specifically with regard to sola gratia, grace alone. James Montgomery Boyce says this, the words sola gratia mean that human beings have no claim upon God. That is, God owes us nothing except just punishment for our many and very willful sins. Therefore, if he does save sinners, which he does in the case of some but not all, it is only because it pleases him to do it. Indeed, apart from this grace and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that flows from it, no one would be saved, since in our lost condition, human beings are not capable of winning, seeking out, or even cooperating with God's grace. By insisting on grace alone, the Reformers were denying that human methods, techniques, or strategies in themselves could ever bring anyone to faith. It is grace alone expressed through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ, releasing us from our bondage to sin and raising us from death to spiritual life. That's the key reality in sanctification. It is grace that releases us unto spiritual growth as a result of the fact that we've been granted spiritual birth, not causing our spiritual birth ourselves. But like Peter has said, you've been caused to be born again. Someone told me just this last week, that's what did it for him. That exact verbiage, oh my word, he caused it to happen. And then of course, 
we can't talk about grace and its results without mentioning Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Not that of yourselves. Could it be more clear? Could it be more graciously stated? For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. See, this is what you want people to know. And how are you going to most effectively help people know this? By living in light of it. Living a life that is expressive of God's grace. Dependent upon the fact that he accomplished it, not you. As long as there's a thread in your theology of this belief that you somehow brought yourself to Christ, you're going to hold others to an impossible theology. You're going to hold them to an impossible salvation. You're going to be attempting to persuade them to do something they can't do. But if you call them to do what the Scripture calls them to do, to quote Jesus, repent and believe in the gospel, and you trust the Holy Spirit to quicken that dead heart, to cause new birth to that person, that's what God will actually use. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. And a man-centered theology is nothing but a guised effort to draw attention to self and what one has done in order to gain God's favor by his efforts. I hope that our church will be known by this grace, that it is the free gift of God, I hope that you, we, together, will graciously and humbly communicate a gospel of grace and not a gospel of works. That we can confidently and passionately and graciously and lovingly, rather than putting someone in a neck hold, say, you need to do this. I hope that we would, rather than that, say, you know, God grants grace freely to those who repent and believe in the gospel. Won't you repent and believe in the gospel in this moment? Won't you do that? So you can say that to someone with full confidence because that's what the scripture declares. And that's how God saves people. See, Peter here is saying that he has exhorted them and he has testified about them that this is the true grace of God. Michael Reeves has said, if we simply speak of salvation by grace, people will imagine grace to be that force God gives to help us where we are at. Strike a chord? You ever thought of grace as some kind of force that sort of helps you where you are? Listen to what he says about this. And thus, they will lack the joy-giving confidence and appeal of Bunyan's gospel of grace alone of actually being found secure in Christ. The other thing, of course, is that grace can be thought of quite impersonally as if being a believer is merely about believing promises and getting blessings. And if that is it, what's to stop the Christian living in mere servile obedience to God? It's no way to live. It's doing what you're supposed to do because, you know, well, God is in charge and I, I obey him. That's not joyous Christianity. It's not even Christianity. As Reeves has explained here, it's a servile attitude, an attitude of compliance, just doing what you're supposed to do to avoid consequences. Reeves goes on to say, Bunyan's discovery was that we are united to Christ to know and love him personally from the heart, to know and love the Father as our Father, to be known and loved as children of God. And then he finishes with this rather tremendous statement. It's not quite that we get grace. It's that we get Christ. End quote. You want to Stop thinking of grace as that force by which you are helped. 
But somehow, because of grace, you got the nudge that you needed to turn to Christ. I just needed a shot in the arm, and, you know, God laid that out. I picked up that ball and ran with it, and, man, it's been great ever since. Blasphemous. As I said, Peter is saying that he has exhorted the elect, and he has testified about them that this is the true grace of God. So he's instructing them. He's also testifying or confirming them regarding the true grace of God. He's encouraging or instructing them in this true grace, but he is also testifying about them or confirming of them that they have exhibited the true grace of God. This is Paul's words to the Thessalonians as well. He indicated to them that he knew that they were of the elect because of their faithfulness, which pointed back to God's grace in their lives. Peter says in verse 3, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter here is confirming the elect to whom he writes. He's saying, I know this to be true about you. You are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You have a living hope because you've been caused to be born again in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and you will receive this unfading, imperishable inheritance. He knows this to be true about them, so he can testify about them. In this you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, a willingness in the midst of trial to say that because I serve a God of grace, I can not only undergo this trial and say, oh, I can hang in there, but I can actually rejoice. My wife will refer you to the Apostle James who says, consider it pure joy when you experience trials. And he is not attempting to cultivate a dishonest or unrealistic perspective on life, saying, pretend it's all great. The trials are horrible. They are seemingly unbearable. You're not gaining joy from the trial itself. The trial is the vehicle by which God's grace results in joy because of what Christ has accomplished for you in his sovereign grace. And you can rejoice. So Peter here is testifying about them. He's confirming their commitment to this grace. He says in verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. In the moment that you believed, the outcome was the salvation of your souls, a salvation by grace. In verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10, we're still in 1 Peter. As to this salvation, the prophets prophesied of this grace. This grace that would come to you. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And what were they doing? They were digging deeply in order to have a better understanding of the grace of the Old Testament God. God is not a God of law in the Old Testament and a God of grace in the New Testament. He's the same God. He has always been a God of grace. And here is evidence 
because these prophets, as they studied and as they prophesied and as they focused on this grace, it was revealed to them, verse 12, that they were not serving themselves. You ever check your heart as you're reading and studying your Bible? You doing it for yourself? I want to have a better understanding. That's good. But the ultimate goal ought to be for God's glory, the edification of the saints, the evangelism of the lost. And this was the purpose of the prophets. They knew that the work that they were doing would benefit those in the future. In these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The joy and the riches and the depth of the grace of God was worthy of the prophets' efforts. And so what they taught and what they focused on and how, where they spent their time resulted in the better good of believers in ages to come. Verse 13, therefore, prepare your minds. He's instructing them. He's exhorting them. He's encouraging them at this point. Therefore, in light of this grace, therefore, prepare your minds for action. As I said last week, we live in experiential theology. We endeavor to understand what God's word actually says, and the result is that we're humbled by it, we're grateful for it, and we want to gird up our minds for action, not sloppily sit around and kind of wait and see what happens, and, you know, maybe I'll look at the Bible a little bit, and, you know, maybe I'll, you know, get ready for my family group, you know, five minutes beforehand, or, you know, (laughs) things like that. Uh, We've all been guilty. I've been guilty of things like that throughout my life, but this isn't what Peter's calling us to. What Peter's calling us to is to prepare our minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Be awake. Don't be drunk. Be awake spiritually. And then this, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. That ultimately when he returns, grace will be expressed in magnificent fullness. Fix your hope on that grace, which will eventually lead to you being reunited with your Savior. It's where your every thought ought to be. And are you asking yourself on a daily basis, are my efforts that are resulting in something, maybe not what I would hope they are, are they focused on grace? Am I doing what I'm doing as a result of grace? How about this? Here's a, here's a further question. How about the things where you are being effective, right? You're engaged in the body, doing what you're doing, and you're seeing some positive result. Have you ever stopped to ask the question, is that truly of the Lord? It's not if it's not the result of grace. If you're doing what you're doing because you have the fleshly ability to twist someone's arm to change their conduct, that's not grace. Really, that's manipulation. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. See, I can't, I can't get a grip on sanctification. I can't, I can't gain mastery over my sin. I've got this pattern. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There's a strong possibility if you're struggling in some particular area and unable to get a spiritual grasp on sin and exhibit victory, that you're trying to do it by the flesh. You're not resting in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's very likely that you've forgotten that your salvation was by grace alone and you're taking some credit for it. It's typically the root of non-sanctification. Chapter 3, verse 7. Let's get real personal. You husbands, in the same way, he's just told wives to submit to their husbands. He says, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker. This is a natural, we might call an axiomatic reality. Women, naturally speaking, are physically weaker than men. Live with your wife in an understanding way. I had a man tell me one time, but I don't understand her. And I said, you've got it completely backwards. The command is not, 
understand your wife. That's not what the passage says. He doesn't say, get a full grasp of the inner workings of your wife's heart and then be nice to her. He says, be nice to her. Be kind. Be understanding. He's calling you to be an understanding man. Since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And you probably remember that when we were in this passage, we determined that he's not talking about the inheritance of eternal life. There's nothing there to lead us to think that that's what he's talking about. Really, here, as you know from the context, he's talking to a believing husband who's married unequally yoked to an unbelieving wife. And the pattern should hold true for the man who is a believer who is married to a believer, but certainly in the context of a marriage where a man is in Christ and his wife is not, he must show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of physical life, the joy of being married. Honor her and be understanding toward her. And especially for the man who's married to an unbeliever, his role, his passion should be to live with her in an understanding way because she doesn't understand. And his life, his, his marriage to her, his leadership of her should not be an effort to twist her arm into Christianity by saying, just ask Jesus into your heart but instead to pray that the Lord would save her and that he would save her by the testimony of his life. The result of a man-centered theology, a lack of willingness to live with her in an understanding way, a lack of willingness to abandon legalism, is that the man's prayers will be hindered. How can you or I or anyone endure the difficulties of this life? How can we endure what God has sovereignly ordained for us if we do not have a right understanding of grace? We won't. We could only find ourselves slipping into an anger against God, a dissatisfaction with what he has said about himself. I see what your word says, but you know some of those things I just don't understand, and so I can't believe them. But to acknowledge that he is a God of grace is to endure the trial with great joy. Listen to this in chapter 4, verse 1. 1 Peter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, that's practical theology. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, did Christ deserve to suffer? Was it not God's sovereign decree that he suffered? I don't think we have to go over that. That's a well-established truth throughout the Scripture. It was God's sovereign decree that Christ would suffer. Christ deserve it? No. But since he has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. You can't do that. You won't do that if you have a mitigated, faulty understanding of grace you will be convinced that you deserve better because you chose Christ. I should be treated better. I'm on your side. What's the deal? Arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. There's no longer a practice of sin in his life. He ceased from sin as he has suffered in the flesh, the point being that as you emulate the person and life of Jesus Christ in your willingness to suffer for his glory, knowing that in many senses it's not deserved, some of it is, but in many senses it's not deserved, the result will be that you will be sanctified and gain victory over sin. As long as you're willing to stand up for yourself, say, I deserve better, I don't deserve the way I'm being treated. You won't experience the sanctification that comes from recognizing that by God's sovereign decree, Christ suffered, and therefore you are to arm yourself with the same purpose, to be willing to suffer for his glory and for your own sanctification. So as, verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. 
For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them. See, this is the confirmation, the affirmation. This is the testifying of Peter about the elect, that you don't do this anymore. They're surprised. Those who do this are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. All this by grace. As each one, verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, this is where my heart bursts with joy. Because as I think of our church, as I look around the room, I think of the things that have gone on just in the last week, much less the last three, three and a half years. You are characterized by operating by grace, by serving one another. If there's anything that I hear from people who are new in our church, two, three, four, five, six weeks in, it is, wow, this people loves to serve. This church loves to serve. But again, I want to challenge you and myself to ask the question, have we gotten into a fleshly rut where we're just doing what we're doing because it works and it results in a good outcome? Are we doing what we're doing by grace, saying, Lord, I can't do this in such a way that honors you unless I am being a steward of the manifold grace you've granted? And then he breaks the spiritual gifts down into two categories. He says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. That's what I do. I speak the utterances of God. Now, let me ask you, how helpful would it be to you or me or anyone if I'm speaking the utterances of God by my power? It wouldn't. It would actually be harmful. If I'm not resting in the grace of God, trusting that the truths of this book that are sometimes hard to hear and hard to receive are things that the Spirit of God is responsible for persuading you of, I would attempt to do it by the flesh. But if I'm trusting in God's grace, I'm believing that he will eventually accomplish in me and in you conviction that it is all true. Many of you have the teaching gift as well. Have you gotten to be such a good teacher? And some of you are quite good teachers. Have you gotten to be a teacher so effective, so helpful, that you forget to pray and plead with God by his grace to produce a work in the heart of the listener. Don't do that. Plead with him to use your faithful study by grace to communicate truth in a sanctifying way to the listener. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Do you ever get disgruntled because you served and nobody else did? Where is everybody? How come we're the only ones here doing this? Can I be clear? You're not doing that by grace. That's kind of obvious. But on the other hand, if you say, praise God, four people showed up. This is a real struggle for pastors. As a young youth pastor, I would get real discouraged because, you know, six kids would show up or 12 or whatever. Gosh, last week we had 15. How come we only had 11? You know, where's so-and-so? How come he's not here? I don't do that anymore. There are things that affect me. That's not one of them. It's not one of them. I know that by God's grace, he's producing in you, our church, a conviction about your need to be faithfully involved in your giftedness. He's producing that in you through the faithfulness of other believers, not just me, but as believers show themselves to be faithful, God is the one who determines what that faithfulness looks like. By the strength which God supplies. That's how you're to serve, by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That can only be done by grace. If you're taking credit for whatever you've done, or if I'm taking credit for whatever I've done, I'm not doing it by grace, and therefore I should take credit, but it's worthless. It's not ultimately helpful. It's important that we rest in grace in all that we do, Verse 12 of chapter 4, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. This is an instruction, right? He's exhorting them. Don't be surprised as if it's odd. 
Think of it, though. The last time something really difficult happened in your life. Did you freak out a little bit? Yeah. You want to get to the place where you receive this instruction in such a way that those in your life who know you and love you and know you well would say, you know, I see you growing in your willingness to not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, uh, you're no longer surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you. But you understand that to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, you keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice in exaltation. That's, that's what you want to be happening, that you with those that you do life with most closely can confidently say, I see you growing in your awareness and understanding and appreciation for the sovereign grace of God. And as a result, you understand that he has willed that things would take place so that in them you would rejoice in him and not in the absence of trials. If it weren't for the trial, you would rejoice in the fleshly abilities that you have. You would rejoice in the things that you have achieved. But because trials sweep in and make you realize you're not as great as you thought you were, then you can say, okay, I can't rejoice in that. That didn't go well. Instead, I'm going to rejoice in that ironclad reality that I have an imperishable inheritance. It's given to me by by grace. It's given to me by grace. Verse 17, chapter 4. 4.17, for it is time for judgment to begin. This is a heavy and important theological reality. Peter says it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. This is what separates believers from false believers, ultimately. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those who also suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Where have you seen that example? Chapter 2. In your Savior, who did not return insult for insult, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. See, this is what a person who is growing in his understanding of the character of God, he's growing in his understanding of the grace of God, he's growing in his understanding of the fact that this is what separates believers from unbelievers, that as God exercises judgment upon the household of God, that the result will be that some will be found to have never obeyed the gospel of God. They only got engaged in the activities. They only got engaged in kind of a haphazard approach to the Bible. They were only willing to believe some of what they saw in the Bible. And God separates by judgment of the household of God, the goats from the sheep. The sheep will entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. They will persevere. They will, because they are preserved, they will persevere. All this by grace. Chapter 5, verse 5, Peter says, You young men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Boy, this should really be helpful. Because it's not unusual for a person to really desire to be humble, but he finds himself unwilling to humble himself towards someone else because of his judgment of that person's lack of humility. How could I ever humble myself before that person who's not humble? That's the best opportunity. Mark it down. You get no credit for humbling yourself before the humble person. That's easy. Be subject to your elders who are imperfect. Sinners saved by grace. Faithful but flawed. But the real command, clothe yourselves, robe yourself, wrap yourself in humility toward one another. Why? God's opposed to the proud. He rejects the proud. The term in the Old Testament is sane, and it's translated as hate. Psalm 5, verse 5, God hates the one who commits iniquity, he opposes him. Not the humble. He gives grace to the humble. And I 
would strongly suggest that the one who is not humble but pretends to be humble wrongly defines grace intentionally. He wants credit for what he's done. And therefore, God withholds grace from him as long as he maintains that prideful attitude. See, if your God is a God who was dependent upon you to choose him, and he's not a sovereign God, you would have no need to humble yourself under his mighty hand. Why would you? It wouldn't make any sense. He would owe you as much of a debt of gratitude as you owe him. Verse 6, chapter 5. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. You remember that study? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And I walked you through expressions of the mighty hand of God all throughout the Old and New Testament. God's sovereign hand of wrath, God's sovereign hand of love, his hand of mercy. See God throughout the scripture expressing his sovereign mighty hand. And the call here by Peter very succinctly is to subject yourself to that, to humble yourself under a right understanding of the character of God. Stop redefining him. Stop creating God in your image. Believe what he said about himself. Why? Why would you humble yourself? This is an instruction, right? This is the exhortation. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. And then this, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I'm thrilled beyond measure to be in 2 Peter in a few weeks. And the primary statement in the beginning of 1 Peter has to do with the sufficiency of the scripture. We have all things pertaining to life and godliness in the true knowledge of him. You need to know the true knowledge of him to cast your anxieties upon him. If he cares for you, you want to know that he's able to bear your anxieties, to take them from you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to to devour But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You're not alone. You're not alone. Satan hates you. He wants you dead. He wants you to suffer. But you're not alone in that. But then he says this in verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, this is reminiscent of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 2, that the momentary light affliction that you're experiencing now does not compare to the eternal weight of glory. See, Christ is going to return. He's coming. He's coming back. The God of all grace has determined that his son would return. After you have suffered for a little while, it doesn't feel like a little while. Well, it is. It's a little while, and it's significant, and I I don't want to diminish the substance of it, because in some cases, it may be seemingly more than you could bear but it is just for a little while. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See, that's now. Do you sense that, that he's doing that in you? I had a dear friend ask me last Sunday, do you think you are aware when you're going through spiritual growth spurts I'm a little scared to say yes <laughs> for, for fear that I might be thinking something's going on when it's not. But you can know that this is going on. You can know that God himself is perfecting, confirming, strengthening, and establishing you. And this is simply a matter of being faithful to the commands of Scripture to sit under sound teaching, to fellowship with true believers, to subject yourself to the call to be involved in biblical evangelism to believe what God has said about himself, to believe what God has said about man, to believe what God has said about the gospel, to believe what God has said about Christianity. That's being faithful. And all of this comes after suffering for a little while. This goes in spurts in our lifetimes. Those spurts are getting longer for me physically. The effects of a, a 14 years worth of football are making me question whether or not it was actually worth it. But still, I know it's a little while. It's not a long time. 
the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. You see, that reality of him electing you in eternity past will certainly come to pass in the future. There's no undoing that. You can rest in that. But it's important that you acknowledge that it's a matter of grace and not your choice. And what will happen? He will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And you will be more like Timothy, about whom Paul, or to whom Paul said, be strong in the grace of Christ. Are you? Are you standing firm in grace? Or are you standing firm in grace and something else? Are you standing firm in a decision, an experience? Are you standing firm in a series of decisions? Are you standing firm in your own wisdom or your conduct? It's easy for us to stand firm in our conduct, our performance, our works. Where do you stand? How do you respond to instruction? Where do you stand when you are instructed? How do you respond to criticism? How do you respond to praise? And we can find ourselves wrongly responding to all these things if we're not resting in grace, if we're not standing in grace. To respond pridefully to instruction means we're not standing in grace. We're thinking, you know, no, we've done better. We deserve better treatment, but especially criticism. We're criticized. Someone says something negative about us. What do we do? Do we stand in grace or do we start rifling through the spiritual resume and say, no, 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 I've done these things. You don't know what you're talking about. How about praise, though? Are you willing to say, praise God that by his grace he's led me to be faithful? You don't want to pretend that you didn't do anything if someone is making encouraging statements about your faithfulness. You don't want to pretend, oh, it's all God. Well, it's all of God's grace, but it's God's grace that leads to faithfulness. How about this? Do you think you can live a life of grace apart from the church, apart from fellowship, counsel, teaching, correction, encouragement, exhortation, testifying? You need the testimony of others in the church to say, I see these things true in your life. You need to hear that. You need to know that that's true. How do you counsel? Do you counsel with a dependence upon grace? Hear me as if I'm speaking this to you personally. Do you counsel with the belief that you can persuade people to change their conduct? We can find ourselves thinking that I, I, can, I can persuade this person. But are, are we willing to say, I'm going to be faithful to the Scripture, I'm going to say what needs to be said, I'm going to trust the Spirit of God to persuade the person? Anything else is manipulation. Do you tell people they need more grace? Or do you tell people that they need full access to God's rich grace? Christians do not need more grace. They have the fullness of God's Grace. Pathway to grace is humility. You have fullness of grace. Do you rest in the reality that God has granted you fullness of grace? Or do you feel that somehow you need to do something to achieve that grace? Now, we've talked extensively in our discipleship time about the means of grace. We're not saying that you somehow are getting more grace. We're saying that you are growing in your understanding of how to access that fullness of grace. To get more grace would have been to have earned it. God gave you fullness of grace in Christ's death on the cross. You want to understand how to experience that, to enjoy it. In chapter 2, we'll finish with this, verse 21. Chapter 2. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. you've been called for. Purpose of suffering, following his steps. Steps, uh, steps of Christ who committed no sin, 
nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. See, that's the theological underbelly of sanctification. You're dying to sin. You're, you're rejecting sin. You're saying no to sin. You have power over sin, but you're living to righteousness. You're obeying the commands of Scripture. How? Because you're following the example of the person of Christ who did not return insult for insult. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. This has nothing to do with physical healing. It has only to do with spiritual healing. We are healed. We are spiritually able to honor him and engage and pursue righteousness. For you were continually straying like sheep, lost sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. May it be that we would stand firm in the grace of our guardian and shepherd, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for Peter and his clear thinking, his clear writing. And we thank you especially for this final command to us to stand firm in the true grace of God. Lord, help us not simply by willpower, to attempt to gain mastery over sin. But Lord, we ask that you would help us to, to think by grace, to speak by grace, to conduct ourselves with grace, to rest in your grace, but not only rest in it, that we might be encouraged of the testimony of our resting in it, but Father, help us to receive passionately the exhortation, the instruction, the imperative to stand firm in this grace, committed to an understanding of what grace is and a willingness to communicate that understanding with grace. And we ask this in the name of our strong and gracious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.